Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mark L. Clifford, who's the president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, a former executive director of the Asia Business Council, and former editor-in-chief of both English-language papers in Hong Kong, The Standard and the South China Morning Post. He's also the author of the new book, Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere. I'm grateful to be able to speak to Mark about the book's insights and ideas. Thanks for joining me, and congratulations on the book's release. Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be here. Maybe we'll just start with a question of personal biography. Mark, your biography notes that while you were a resident of Hong Kong for more than 20 years, you recently left the country. What prompted you to leave? I took a kind of long end of the year holiday at the end of 2020, and I just bought my ticket uh, to return. I'd planned to come back uh, just after the new year, a year ago. And uh, happened to uh, see that uh, Jimmy Lai, who is the chairman of Next Digital, published, used to publish uh, the pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily, and a company that I was on the board of, I saw a picture of Jimmy in manacled chains in a courtroom, 35 pounds of chains to restrain, as if any were needed, a 74-year-old diabetic, practicing Catholic, who's always preached nonviolence. Jimmy was thrown in jail before he was convicted on the flimsiest of charges. And to add to my personal concern, I mean, I was very concerned for this, this you know, man, one of the greatest people I've met in my life. But the prosecutor, among many other reasons, said that bail should be denied because of some very um, innocent remarks I'd made publicly calling Jimmy a symbol of Hong Kong resistance. Now, why anybody should be thrown in jail because somebody says they're a symbol of Hong Kong resistance why anybody should be thrown in jail because he's just been doing what he's been doing for decades, and that's fighting for democracy in, in Hong Kong. I don't know, but it didn't seem like the kind of place that I'd want to go back to in a hurry. And as a, as a director, I had found myself a few months earlier being the only director in Hong Kong not in police custody after uh, national security law police uh, raided the headquarters of Apple Daily and, and took away um, a number of directors, including Jimmy Lai the CEO, the COO. I mean, it was, you know, it was getting increasingly uncomfortable for me personally, but it was just very tragic and sad to see my colleagues being put behind bars for doing what they'd been doing for 26 years, which is running a newspaper and, and exercising the freedom of press that the Chinese had promised they'd continue to enjoy. That's a fascinating insight, Mark, which really speaks to one of the strengths of your book. You both have a journalistic eye describing the developments in Hong Kong, but as you outline in your answer, you're also a participant. You're not merely an observer. And I think that combination makes this book 
such a fascinating read. If I can go back for a second, though, for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with Hong Kong's unique institutional arrangement with China, if we can just start with some basic context. What does it mean that Hong Kong was established by international treaty as a special administrative region? And how has that arrangement enabled the city to flourish for the past 25 years or so, even though it was part of the Chinese orbit? Yeah, it, it was a Hong Kong, of course, was a British colony for 150 years. And uh, uh, the time for that came to an end. The, the 99 year lease uh, on part of the territory ran out and the British agreed to to hand the territory back to China. And they signed an international treaty registered at the United Nations that governed uh, you know, what would happen to Hong Kong after that. And the Chinese very magnanimously agreed to a 50 year period where Hong Kong would essentially function as a kind of almost like a semi-independent uh, state. As it has its own currency, its own tax system. There's a very hard border. It's actually harder to go from Hong Kong to China than it is from uh, Canada to the U.S. It's a, you know, it, it, it really is one country, two systems. And China also promised under a kind of mini constitution that during these 50 years, Hong Kong people would continue to enjoy all the freedoms they had under the Brits, uh, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of worship, uh, freedom to pretty much just live your life without fearing there'd be a midnight knock at the door. Unfortunately, that changed. May I just ask one more basic question before we move on to the bigger story? You mentioned the international treaty. Does it anticipate the possibility of breach? And if so, does it outline any remedies if the parties, namely China, act contrary to its provisions? Unfortunately, no. Britain does have uh, periodic reviews twice a year to look at whether or not China is fulfilling its obligations under the treaty. Not only does China ignore those, China has now decided that the treaty is a historical document that has no more meaning or effect now that uh, China's gotten Hong Kong back. So I think it's a really great indication of the degree to which we really can't trust China. We can't take China at its word. You mentioned, Mark, that at least initially, China was living by the treaty. When did you start to see a change in Chinese policy vis-a-vis Hong Kong? And what do you think caused China to break with its treaty commitments? I don't know that China ever really was comfortable. It promised all these things, including a move towards universal suffrage. And that had never existed under the Brits. Uh, there had been moved towards more, more direct democracy of the, of the city council effectively. But China promised there'd be a move towards universal suffrage and to allow Hong Kong people to elect uh, what's effectively the mayor and the entire city council under what you know would be the kind of universal suffrage you have in, in Canada. I don't think China ever really liked that idea. And after about 15 years, the Hong Kong people started getting increasingly impatient with the reality that uh, Hong Kong, that China was not going to live up to its promises. And so we had a remarkable student-led movement in 2014 called the Umbrella Movement or Occupy Central. And uh, I think at that point, China started saying, whoa, we have really lost control because they thought that the Hong Kong people would welcome you know, Chinese rule with open arms. And instead, what they found out is a generation of people who were born after the end of British colonialism were, in fact, leading this student movement. People like Joshua Wong and, and other people who, who were babies when the British left. And I think that just shocked the Chinese, coupled with the fact that Xi Jinping had just taken power. And of course, he's the, the hardest line and most powerful ruler we've had, at least since Mao Zedong. You mentioned in an earlier answer of the increasing crackdowns and suspensions of any form of habeas corpus rights and so on. 
Do you want to just elaborate, please? How has China's undermining of Hong Kong independence manifested itself? What are its methods? And what have been the consequences for the country's politics and culture? Well, of course, Hong Kong is not a country. And I think that's one of the real issues because Hong Kong people see themselves as a kind of semi-independent uh, place. And again, I think that drives Beijing nuts because the, the communist leaders in Beijing have one vision of China, and that's one where they control everything and they control people's bodies, they control people's thoughts. In Hong Kong, people are not like that. And uh, there was a very draconian law that came in about a year and a half ago, the national security law, and that effectively criminalizes thought. And so since then, we've seen, beginning with Apple Daily, uh, all major opposition or pro-democracy newspapers shut down, opposition politicians thrown in jail or having to flee, civil society, I mean, you know, unions, uh, teachers unions, associations have forced to disband, bank accounts seized you know, really a theft of property, which is so ironic in a, in a hyper-capitalist city like Hong Kong. So just a, one of many, many examples, there was a group of uh, speech therapists and uh, three of them co-authored a book and it was a children's book and it featured sheep and wolves. And the leader of that group is now in jail without bail, without any imminent trial date, on national security law charges because supposedly she and this book have incited hatred and therefore is a subversive under the kind of thought crime uh, way of thinking of this national security law. So we've gone from a city that was as free as Toronto or, or New York to one that's, um, yeah, more like, uh, I don't know, the old days of this of the Soviet Union. I mean, it's it's a really scary situation right now. If I can ask you to project forward, Mark, what, in your view, is the likely outcome of China's ongoing interference in Hong Kong? Is the city's experience as what you've called, quote, a beacon of prosperity and freedom essentially done? Is there any reason for optimism? I think in the short to medium term, it's extremely hard to be optimistic. The Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, has uh, a garrison in Hong Kong. It's always been very well behaved. It's, it stays out of sight. But the, the new head of that has just been named. He's come from Xinjiang which is the, uh, of course, the mostly Muslim uh, Uyghur region in the, in the western part of China, where uh, we have the largest internment of civilians since the Nazi period. This uh, guy ran an elite commando unit that hunted down supposed terrorists in Xinjiang. The fact that he's being sent to Hong Kong to run the PLA gives you a pretty good indication of what the Chinese see coming, and it's not a lot of easing. Another top Chinese official who was re- appointed a couple of years ago uh, was best known for uh, busting up Christian churches in uh, the province of Zhejiang. I mean, these are tough, hard communist people who are close to Xi Jinping and want to enforce uh, his draconian rule. I think Hong Kong is regarded a bit like Tibet and Xinjiang. It's a kind of far-off, restive province that needs to be hammered into submission. I happen to think and believe in the long run that the people of Hong Kong and their spirit and their their love of, of freedom is going to prevail. But, uh, you know, the long run can be a very long time. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., 
into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. In that regard, what do you think about the West's reaction to China's crackdown in Hong Kong? Are you surprised? Are you disappointed? What should these countries be doing in your view? Well, the good news is that I think the, the West, uh, say Canada, the two Michaels have uh, the case of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, I think caused the scales to fall from a lot of people's eyes. The behavior of China in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong, again, has hardened attitudes in a lot of uh, democratic countries. I think we're still in the early stages of a, of a fundamental reassessment of our relationship with China. Look, it's the world's second largest economy. It's the most populous country. I don't think anybody wants to write off China or exclude it from the community of nations. But I do think to um, go along with its behavior is crazy and, and very, very short-sighted. So we've seen some sanctions against, uh, let's just take the case of Hong Kong. We've seen some sanctions against senior Hong Kong officials. But I think we're going to have to see a much harder, more punitive sanctions regime against uh, judges and other enablers who are using administrative procedures to lock people up, steal their assets, take away their liberty. And uh, I think that the days when sort of mid-ranking Hong Kong officials or judges could travel with impunity to the West, have bank accounts in London, send their children to school in Vancouver, I think we've got to look at ending those sorts of days. And uh, nobody wants war with China, but it seems like China's gearing for real confrontation with the West. So I think the hardening has begun, but we need to, we need, it needs to go much further. We need to be much more realistic about China's ambitions. Let me just pick up those points. Your book argues that Hong Kong is a window into how China will act in other regions and countries within its orbit. Do you mind elaborating on this key insight? What does this experience tell us about a world in which China is an increasing superpower? Well, I, it's a great question, and it's one that is just the answer is just unfolding. But it would mean, for example, Sean, that you wouldn't be able to have a radio program like this because there would be United Front people in Canada uh, who would be harassing you and picketing outside your station, bullying you. It really mean that nobody can talk about subjects that China doesn't want talked about. And that's, of course, an ever increasing list. Look at the kind of bullying that Lithuania, a tiny little Baltic country, is undergoing because it invited Taiwan to open a trade office under the name of Taiwan. Or a larger country like Australia that called for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID. By the way, that's something China says it wants. But China decided that, that a really, truly independent investigation would, would be too scary for China. And so it essentially shut off imports of most Australian goods, except the things that it needed, like iron ore. It's a world in which the ability to freely discuss and, and act is circumscribed. It's a world that the Dalai Lama can't be invited to an American university, a world where U.S. professors don't have uh, numerous Chinese students in their, in their classes because there's too much of a danger that one Chinese student is spying on the other Chinese student. And by the way, all these things are already happening. Let's wrap up on Canada. There are, according to some estimates, 300,000 Canadian citizens living in Hong Kong. How should Canadian policymakers think about the place of Hong Kong in the country's foreign policy? And how should they think about China more generally? 
It's an excellent question, but uh, I think that we need to, first of all, it, it is remarkable, these 300,000 Canadian passport holders. And uh, I think a lot of people are making some hard decisions about whether to leave or whether to stay. And there's already been a you know significant decrease in population as people leave Hong Kong. And I mean, that's really sad for me to think of, of Hong Kong hollowing out like that. It'll probably be great for, for Canada and for the countries to where uh, these, these Hong Kongers go. But I think more on a more strategic level, countries like uh, Canada and other countries need to ensure that they're not beholden to China. So clearly, a lot of goods are manufactured in China, and I think they will be for some time. It's one thing to have uh, non-strategic goods uh, manufactured there, but I think we need to look very uh, hard at being too dependent on China for critical goods. And I think the COVID pandemic was a kind of wake-up call exposing um, how um, you know, much we're dependent on some really you know, far-flung supply chains. So imagine if China, for strategic reasons, decided it wanted to start squeezing uh, the West. I mean, I think we need to be thinking about uh, these issues. And in that regard, and, and more immediately, I think we need to be looking at financial flows. I mean, to me, it's outrageous that uh, a firefighter or a healthcare worker from Toronto could see her pension fund money fueling Chinese military expansion. But that's effectively what's happening right now. And a lot of that money is being funneled through Hong Kong. And it's as a result of, you know, often index providers who say, oh, you need to have X percent of your money in China. And then just arithmetically, the investments go up. But why do we want to be uh, financing somebody who says that they want to confront us and uh, effectively uh, destroy our way of life? I mean, I think these are big long-term strategic issues that Canadian policymakers, politicians, and of course, the public need to be think about and start grappling with. That's a great answer, Mark. If I may just end with a personal question. We started by talking about your difficult decision to leave Hong Kong. Do you think you'll go back? Do you have any intentions to ultimately live there once again? I'd love to go back. I think that the prospects of, of that um, are diminishing. Um, I celebrated, coincidentally, my 64th birthday last summer by taking over as president of this new NGO, the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, to try to uh, free political prisoners in Hong Kong. I didn't think at the age of 64 I'd be starting a new career as a political uh, human rights activist, uh, having, you know, as we discussed, spent a lot of my life on the sidelines just watching these things. But you know, I'm drawn into something where I'm trying to free my colleagues and, and you know, hundreds of people I don't know. And uh, I think the prospects that the Hong Kong government would welcome me back, despite the fact I have a permanent residence there, um, are pretty slim. So I'd love to go back. It's one of the most magical, wonderful cities in the world in many ways. And uh, it breaks my heart, not personally, but for the, you know, the millions of Hong Kongers who had their lives shattered by these thugs from Beijing who really seem to just care about staying in power. And uh, it's unfortunate that that way of thinking has now breached the border and has infected Hong Kong. Well, if listeners want to better understand the circumstances that force you to leave your home, then they'll read Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere. Mark L. Clifford, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thanks so much, Sean. It's been a real pleasure and I really appreciate your interest. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. 
We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.